Well, you have likely heard the term BHAG, B-H-A-G, especially if you've done any studies in business or if you've led a business. Uh, that term stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals, BHAGs. Uh, it was first coined by Jim Collins in his 1994 book, Built to Last. Uh, he defines it in this way. A BHAG is a compelling long-term goal that is intriguing enough to inspire employees of an organization to take action. BHAGs are meant to pull people out of a slump and energize them to implement a big picture plan that could take a longer time frame, like a decade, to complete. So in his book, Collins gives some very well-known examples. Uh, back in 1961, President John F. Kennedy stood before the nation and said, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before the decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to earth. Or you could go back 100 years ago. Henry Ford's determination to democratize the automobile. So back in 1907, he said, I want to build a motor car for the great multitude. It will be so low in price that no man making a good salary will be unable to own one and enjoy with his family the blessing of hours of pleasure in God's great open spaces. Everyone will be able to afford one and everyone will have one. The horses will have disappeared from our highways. The automobile will be taken for granted. Big, hairy, audacious goals. So like putting a man on the moon or a car in every driveway, what I want to convince you of in the next little bit is that God has a BHAG. We get a glimpse of it all the way through the Bible and most profoundly at the end of the New Testament. And what is God's BHAG? Well, if we grab a phrase out of our text today, Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says this, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Or if we fast forward to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and we hear this great multi-ethnic worship service, and it is both a future vision, but it is also a compelling blueprint for the present, because God wants you and me to be part of fulfilling his big, hairy, audacious goal. That's where we're headed. Isaiah 49 is the chapter we're studying, and Isaiah 49 is all about Jesus. Now, I'm just going to make a side note here. We're studying about 16 chapters this fall, from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55. And embedded in those 16 chapters are four poems or songs that are sometimes called the servant songs. Uh, some of the most detailed prophecies that we have about the coming Messiah. And the Holy Spirit is saying through Isaiah, look to my servant. Look to Jesus. And fundamentally, what he has to tell us is that my servant is your only hope. So Israel, so people of God in every generation, look to my servant. And back in Isaiah 42, we had the first of the servant songs. And we saw Jesus there as the hope for the individual, uh, the hope for the hopeless, and a very personal and tender message when it says the, the bruised reed he will not break and the smoldering wick he will not snuff out, a very tender message to us as individuals. 
In Isaiah 49, he picks up on that message of hope, but he raises it up to the macro level, if you will, and it is now hope for the nations, hope for the world. There may not be any more critical issue, given the times that we're living in, than this topic. How do we as Christians relate to the world around us, specifically to the outsiders, to the stranger, to those who are not like us? to those with whom we disagree. Now, we're going to fly through this text. We're in Isaiah 49. We're going to read the first 13 verses together, but we're going to read them rather than in a chunk, piece by piece, and I'm just going to comment as we make our way through it. And then at the end, I want to give you three quick applications, and hopefully the Lord will use this message to encourage you in the time and season that we're in right now. So Isaiah 49, verse 1, simply says this, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. So just press pause right there. That's enough for a moment. Remind yourself again. Remind yourself again of who the original readers were. Isaiah is writing these words in advance to the people who were going to be taken into captivity by Babylon. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to Assyria. And Isaiah prophesies of what will happen to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he predicts the fall of that kingdom to Babylon. And then he gives this message of hope to the exiles who aren't even yet exiles. But in advance, let me tell you what is going to happen. And in essence, what Isaiah is saying to these people is you may think that these days are dark, but they're actually going to get darker before they get better. That's not very hopeful, is it? I'm sending you to Babylon to purify you. You're going to go through a fire of affliction. The furnace of affliction is the analogy that he uses. But my servant, my servant is going to be watching over you and he will comfort you. Because I, I am the Lord, and there is no other beside me. So in Isaiah 49, it's an interesting twist. Because it's as if God is now saying, let's just change the topic for a moment. Let me get your eyes off of yourself and your circumstances, and let me tell you about my future plan for the nations, for others, and how you can be part of it, how you can bless them. Now let that sink in for a moment. Just think about it. It's, it's rather amazing, actually, that God is calling these people to lift their eyes above their current circumstances. Now remember, they're literally prisoners of war. They've been dragged to a foreign land. They don't fit in. Their passport is not a Babylonian passport. Their language, the food, the culture, they are strangers and exiles. And God now changes the topic and says, let me tell you about my plans for all the other nations. I'm going to use you as a light for the nations, and I'm going to raise up one specifically who will be indeed the light for the nations. Now, I want to just jump to the end of our text. I know I'm taking a bit of a rabbit trail here on those first few verses, but it's important. When you get to the end of our text in verse 12, basically what God says is, and his, this will be the result, people are going to flood in from north and south and east and west. They are going to come to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
And in Isaiah 49, verse 13, the response should be, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. It's a song of praise. But if you read on to verse 14, you will see that the people's response was not what we might expect and not what God expected. Verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Now press pause within the pause that we've already pressed. Let's just go digger down, deep, 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 deeper down this rabbit hole. There's a whole different message packaged between verse 13 and 14 than we won't have time to talk about, but I want to mention. Because it's totally possible that you might listen to this message today. You might read Isaiah 49, and you might have the very same response that these original readers had. Oh, that's really great, God. I'm so glad that you're concerned about those other people. I'm so glad you're concerned about the other nations, but what about me, God? What about the trouble that I am in right now? I think the Lord has forgotten me. The Lord has forsaken me. Lord, don't you see the mess that we are in right now? And so we too need to get up out of the weeds of our circumstances and what is right in front of us in the daily grind in 2021 from the darkness and the discouragement and the frustrations that we are facing and get our eyes on God's long-range vision and plan. It's why this uh, whole series is so important. Behold your God. Behold your God. Behold your God. Get up out of the trenches of daily life. And so I've been praying this week that God would actually be able to get through to us and that we could hear what he wants to say to us today from this text. Okay, let's jump back in. Uh, verse 1 and 2, the second half. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Uh, it's just speaking about who Jesus is, the servant. I was set apart before I was born. He named me from my mother's womb. And of course, we fast forward to a, a young woman named Mary being told, you will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. Uh, he makes my mouth like a sword and the powerful words, the powerful teachings of Jesus, but he hid me away. He hid me away like a, a polished arrow in his quiver. The time was not yet, but God would pull out that arrow and he would shoot it in its appropriate time. Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, when everything was ready, when the time was appropriate, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman. So this is who I am. Uh, read verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now, I, I need to pause there because you're going, wait a minute, you keep talking about Jesus. Uh, this says you are my servant Israel. Uh, so what we need to take note of is the fact that prophecy can use terms in two different ways, and that is exactly what Isaiah is using here. There is indeed two servants, uh, for two different vantage points. The nation of Israel is indeed the servant of God as a corporate nation. They were to be the light unto the Gentiles. Abraham was told, through you and your descendants, all nations will be blessed. 
But then there is a personal and individual servant. The New Testament identifies him as Jesus himself. Or if you go back to Abraham's promise, your seed will be a blessing to the nations. And that seed was Jesus. And that Jesus is indeed the true and better Israel. Through him, all nations will be blessed. So Jesus accomplishes what Israel could not accomplish in bringing salvation to the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 4. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. We see Jesus in the New Testament and we hear his frustration. We hear his discouragement at times. Matthew 23, he comes up to the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. The Gospel of John puts it very pointedly. In John 1, the true light, Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the servant is saying, have I spent my strength for nothing? These people don't want me. They won't listen to me. They're hard-hearted. They're rebellious. Oh, God, would you help me? So verse 5 and 6, and I'm going to split it between the ESV and the message because I, I love how the second verse is paraphrased by Peterson. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So all of that, and now to me the Lord says, and now listen how the message puts it. He says, but that's not a big enough job for my servant just to recover the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Jacob, merely to round up the strays of Israel, I'm setting you up as a light for the nations so that my salvation becomes global. If you're following along, you hear the servant, in some sense arguing with God, asking in his discouragement, have I labored in vain? Has all my work been for nothing? And in verse 5, the Lord gives him encouragement. The Lord becomes his strength. And in verse 6, he says, in fact, I've got an even bigger assignment for you. Salvation, not just for Israel, but salvation for all of the nations. And then verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. In a summary statement, kings are going to bow down to you, my servant. And what God is saying to Jesus in this moment is it ain't over until it's over. And you might be discouraged, verse 4, have you spent all your energy in vain? But I will be your strength, verse 5. And I will accomplish what I have set out to do because I am faithful, verse 7. 
In other words, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Keep your eyes on the long-range vision of what is God is on about. Now we're going to read the rest of the passage from verse 8 to 13. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I've answered you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the lands of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Bring forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now, if you missed it, that's a long chunk. If you missed it, then read it again. Read it again slowly. Maybe read it out loud. Because this chunk is really good news. Because what it points to is the result of the servant's work and what will be accomplished. You are going to call prisoners out of jail. The captives will be set free. You are going to bring light into the darkness. You are going to bring sight to blind eyes that will see. The mountains will be leveled out to make a level path for the Lord. In, in other words, all the barriers, all the obstacles to the gospel are going to be removed and people from all over the face of the earth will ascend to the hill of the Lord from the north and the south and the east and the west. There is going to be a day of great rejoicing and that should bring you comfort, my people. It should comfort you. Get your eyes on the long range, the BHAG that God has. So I told you earlier that I wanted to convince you that God has a big, hairy, audacious goal. And we can look back and see it in the Old Testament. We look at the New Testament and the life of Christ, and we look forward to the revelation of Jesus at the end of the book of what's coming in the future. And in a world of war and death and sickness and racism and hatred and abuse and pain, where's it all headed? And God gives us a glimpse the apocalypse, which literally means to pull back the veil, to look behind the screen, a revelation. And he says in Revelation 7, And after this I looked, and behold, a multitude that none could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That is God's big, hairy, audacious goal, his BHAG. And we look forward to that day. In the fulfilled kingdom of God, when there are no longer barriers between the people groups, when there are no longer arguments over cultures and languages and customs and preferences, because we are all caught up into the new culture, the kingdom of God. And in the meanwhile, 
We work for the values of that coming kingdom. So let me ask, how are we doing? How are we doing at tearing down the barriers and welcoming the stranger? Uh, It's really the essence behind that word hospitality. Uh, Have we forgotten that we are called to be hospitable people? And have we forgotten what that word actually means? In in our modern language, uh, we we might have lost the original. In the Greek language, it is the word philozenos. Aren't you impressed that I know the Greek language? Uh, I just looked it up on my my Bible software. Philozenos. It's a compound word. It comes from phileo, which you may have heard before, brotherly love, phileo. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, phileo. And xenos, stranger. Philozenos, the love of the stranger. In other words, open your life to the stranger. Make the stranger into your friend and bring them into your family. And oh, how our world needs Philozenos today. Because our current world is filled with the opposite. You've heard the word xenophobia. It's the opposite of Philozenos. Xenos, the stranger, and phobia to fear, xenophobia. And that vast bastion of intellectual truth, Wikipedia, defines xenophobia in this way. It is the fear or hatred of that which is perceived to be foreign or strange. Xenophobia can involve perceptions of an in-group towards an out-group and can manifest itself in suspicion of the activity of others and a desire to eliminate their presence and may relate to a fear of losing national, ethnic, or racial identity. Let's go back to God's BHAG. The vision that we see in the future is a multi-ethnic future. Some from every tribe and nation and kindred and tongue, we're told. But we also need to know what the future is not and make some distinctions. It's important. The future is not so much a multiracial future because if the Bible is true, there is just one race, the human race. We are all descendants of the same parents, Adam and Eve. Acts 17, Paul said to the Athenians that God made all the nations from one, from Adam. So we're all just cousins. So the future is not so much multiracial, and the future is also not so much multicultural. Now that sounds almost heretical when we pride ourselves on on our multiculturalism. So listen, listen really clearly. Because the future is indeed a multi-ethnic future. As the various tribes and nations and languages and groups are represented, but it is not truly multicultural because all of our cultures, all of human culture, all of geopolitical cultures are caught up into and surrendered unto the culture of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. We surrender our passports and we get a new passport, a different kingdom and a different king. And so God's big, hairy, audacious goal of millions around the throne of God is not a Canadian vision. It's a kingdom vision. It is not an Irish, Scottish, English, Welsh, Dutch, Spanish, French, or any other European culture. For all those cultures will bow to king and to his kingdom. It is not Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Singaporean, Malaysian, Filipino, or Indonesian. 
for all those cultures will bow to king and his kingdom. It is not the culture of Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkestan, Uzbekistan, or any of the other stands that you know. Because all those cultures will bow to the king and to kingdom culture. It is not Nigerian, Kenyan, Rwandan, Sudanese, Eritrean, or Moroccan for all of those cultures will bow to the king and to kingdom culture. It is not Syrian, Iraqi, Iranian, Turkish, Persian, Saudi, Palestinian, or Israeli, because all of those cultures will bow to the king and to kingdom. It is not Chilean, Colombian, Venezuelan, Mexican, Haitian, or Cuban, because all of those cultures will bow to king and to kingdom. It is not Squamish, Chilcotin, Navajo, Ute, Iroquois, Ojibwe, or Mohawk culture, for all of those cultures will bow to the king and to kingdom culture. I love the work of Christopher Wright. And in his book, The Mission of God, he says this, the inhabitants of the new creation are not portrayed as a homogenized mass or a single global culture. Rather, they will display the continuing glorious diversity of the human race through history. In other words, the new creation is not a melting pot. It is not truly e pluribus unum, but a salad bowl, distinctive in color and texture and taste. That Latin phrase might be familiar to you if you've ever held U.S. currency in your hand and examined it. Uh, it is written on U.S. currency, e pluribus unum. It is the motto of the United States that was adopted back in 1782. Uh, it was actually taken from a poem that Virgil wrote called Mortem, where uh, the ingredients were put into a mortar and they were ground with a pestle until all the colors blended into one unified palette. And what Christopher Wright is saying is this, that the kingdom of God is not truly a melting pot where we lose all of our distinctiveness. The cultures will be represented. The ethnic groups will be there. And yet it is a place where all human cultures will surrender to the values of the kingdom of God. And so if that is our future, if that is our future as children of the high king, then what part do we have to play in our culture today? And I want to leave you with just three quick applications. And the first is this, that we are called to be agents of his reconciliation at every level. Reconciliation is first and foremost with God himself, uh, the, the vertical axis of the cross, you will. Paul's cry in 2 Corinthians 5 is that we are his ambassadors and we plead with people, be reconciled to God, the vertical axis. And Ephesians 2 then goes on to describe how Jesus is the peacemaker. He is the wall breaker, that he brings people together that shouldn't never be together, the world says. And so you've got the vertical axis and the horizontal axis of the cross calling us to reconcile with God and to reconcile with one another. Secondly, we're called to be agents of his grace. If Jesus is the hope for the hopeless, for the bruised reed and the, the smoldering wick, if he is tender and compassionate, if he is for you, if he is a restorer and a rescuer and a redeemer, then so too should we be tender. And so too are we to rescue and to restore. Agents of reconciliation, agents of grace. And finally, we are also called to be conduits or agents 
of his love. Agents of his love. Francis Schaeffer is a name that maybe you have not heard. He died almost 40 years ago. But you've probably stumbled onto his life and his work if you've done any reading in apologetics or Christian philosophy. Uh, He had a huge impact on the evangelical life and thinking of the 20th century. Uh, He and his wife established a Christian guest home in Switzerland that they called Labrie. Uh, And it had a three-part vision. It was uh, a part retreat center, a part seminary, and a part commune. And at any given point in time, 20 or 30 guests would be living with the Schaefers in their home. They would spend a few days or even a few months. And they would have deep philosophical and theological discussions about art and theology and life and what it meant to live as Christians. And one of the many things that Schaefer is known for is his teaching that he called the final apologetic, the final argument, the final reason. And he said that much of Christian apologetics has boiled down to, in our day, who has the greatest intellect? Who has the greatest mind? Who's the smartest voice in the room? So in other words, who can argue whom into the corner? Who can prove that they are right? But Schaefer argued for a different approach. He said it's not so much about winning arguments as it is about winning people. And in his book, The God Who Is There, Schaefer writes this, the world has a right to look upon us and make a judgment. We're told by Jesus that as we love one another, the world will judge, not only whether we are his disciples, but whether the Father sent the Son. In his book, The Mark of a Christian, he says, unless true Christians show observable love to each other, Christ says, The world can't be expected to listen, even when we give the proper answers. So Northview, we need to study well. We need to dig deeply into philosophy and theology. We need to give the very best answers we can. But at the end of the day, the greatest apologetic for the gospel is our love to one another and our love to a watching world. And so the question that I had as I came to this text is, Lord, what is it that you want us to see? And I think the Lord wants us to see his mission, his vision, his passion for the nations, his BHAG, if you will. And if this is his heart as Lord of the church, then it needs to be the heart of the church of which he is Lord. Let me say that again. That if this is his heart as Lord of the church, then it also needs to be the heart of the church of which he is Lord. And from a worldly point of view, you know this already. It's a crazy vision. It really is crazy. There's no other agency that's trying to do what Jesus has called his church to do. I don't think there is. This beautiful symphony of a diverse community that comes together in genuine love where rich and poor, educated and not, young and old, married and single, men, women, boys and girls, welcomed into the orchestra, bring your voice, bring your instrument, and tune your lives to one another and to the King of Kings. 
And when the church of Jesus is functioning like it should, it is a beautiful mosaic, it is a beautiful orchestra to society, and it is the only thing like it on the earth. Where else do we see a multi-generational gathering from newborns up to 90-plus-year-olds singing out praise to their God? Where else can you see recovering addicts and millionaires sitting side by side? The single mom and the immigrant, the widow, the unemployed father and the expectant mother, the musician, the athlete, the banker, the plumber, the scholar, the doctor and the patient, the barista, the farmhand, those who own dogs and those who are owned by cats, red and yellow, black and white, They are all precious in his sight, right? Sitting together side by side, where else under the sun is anyone in their right mind trying to bring together such a motley crew and ask them to serve and care and love for one another as the world around them will see the love of Christ? Where else? I know of no other place on earth other than the gathering of God's people that we call the church. And it is either a recipe for disaster. Or it is the most beautiful melody that you could ever imagine. God's behag. That the nations will stand as one before his throne. And that's a vision worth giving our lives to. So how about you? Who is it that Jesus is asking you to step toward? To reach across maybe a language barrier, a cultural barrier, an economic barrier, a generational barrier, maybe even a COVID-19 barrier. And in the name of Jesus, start to tear down those walls. Let me pray for you. Father, right now we are neck deep in this time that we live in, and I don't even need to name it because everyone knows what we're facing in our culture. And just like these exiles needed to be lifted up out of the weeds of their exile and get their eyes on your long-range vision, so too do we need to be lifted up out of our daily lives. And so, Lord, I pray for the men and women and boys and girls that are listening to this message. You know the circumstances they are in. You know their joy and you know their pain. And you know how much it is like human nature to get tunnel visioned in on only today and only our circumstances and only our pain and only our frustration and really to cry out like the people in this text did, the Lord's forgotten me. But God, you call us to lift our eyes to the long-range vision, to see what you are on about in our own lives as you bring comfort and hope and what you're on about in the nations. And so, Lord, I pray for our church family. I pray for Northview. I pray, Lord, that we would be known more and more and more and more, not just as a church of truth, of good theology and philosophy and sound argument, but that we would be known as a people who deeply and deeply and deeply love one another 
love the other, love the stranger, that we would be known for our hospitality, that we would see a foretaste of Revelation 7 every time we gather. I ask that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.